The Florida Gators put up the worst defense performance in school history as LSU cruises to a 52-35 victory. Tonight, we recap the game. We talk about what's going on with the defense and what the Gators have to do to pick up the pieces and move on from here. This is the In All Kinds Weather Forecast. And welcome in to another episode of the In All Kinds Weather Forecast. I am your host, Chris Yanes, alongside my co-host, Neil Shulman. And we've got another recap that we did not want to do tonight, but we're going to have to do it as the LSU Tigers defeat the Florida Gators, as expected, 52-35. to Maybe what wasn't expected was the worst defensive performance in school history, which we'll talk about tonight. But before we get to all that, make sure if you are not already to subscribe, subscribe down below. Make sure to like, leave a comment, drop a comment tonight on your thoughts of this LSU game and what the Gators need to do to build the program forward from here. And if you're listening on audio format, please rate and review the show. Helps us reach all of Gator Nation and bring you more great content. All right, Neil. The Florida Gators fall 52-35 to 35 to the LSU Tigers. This wasn't unexpected. Of course, LSU coming into this game was a two-touchdown favorite, it, where, depending on where you look. So the fact that the Gators fell by 17 wasn't exactly much of a surprise, but they were flat-out dominated on offense versus defense. The defense for us could not stop a nosebleed. LSU went down the field almost every single time. They actually didn't even punt one time in this game. LSU, the only way they were actually stopped was a goal line stand early in the first quarter. And I think that gave a lot of Gator fans some hope that that could go their way. But the Gators just could not get anything going. And it's a shame because the offense did fight very hard in this game, putting up 35 points, almost 500 yards of offense. This was actually one of the better offensive performances that Florida has put up in recent games. But, Neil, instant reaction here. What are your thoughts as the Gators, once again, have now lost three games in a row? They are now staring down the barrel of two more ranked opponents coming up on the horizon. They're now, as of tonight, on our recording here, double-digit underdogs next weekend in Columbia, Missouri. What are your thoughts? Um, I mean, the first thought is that you got to always put – context into play whenever you're talking about a, a performance that is deemed to be historic or the worst ever or anything because whenever that 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 label gets thrown out it's always oh you're just a prisoner of the moment oh that's hyperbole surely there was there was a worse performance uh in 1940 or whatever no that was that was it that was the single worst performance in the history of Florida football you can go back through the the 1910s, 1940s, 1970s, it doesn't matter. This was worse than all of them. And it's made all the more embarrassing because of the new clock rules in college football, where you get fewer possessions per game. The clock does not stop on out of bounds and first down plays the way it did up until last year. So just think about that for all the incompetence that fans have been haranguing Todd Grantham and even Patrick Tony for, even they didn't have a defense that was responsible for this bad of performance. So just, just let that sink in. You have, you have world war one, you have world war two, Korean war, Vietnam war, turn of the century, the Grantham years, the Patrick Tony year, 
Never has Florida surrendered 700 yards before. Now, why did that happen? We can get into that in a bit. It was not just one thing. Spoiler alert, there were a lot of different things that came together um, in kind of the perfect storm that resulted in the worst performance in school history. But, I mean, the instant reaction is that Florida is just not a great team. And I think that when we saw that five-and-a-half win projection by Las Vegas before the season started, we were all thinking, well – that's a little weird. I mean, no one here thinks Florida's going to win the national championship this year, but surely, surely we can get like seven and five, right? At worst, maybe we can get eight and four. And some people even got a little high on their high horses and said, oh, nine and three is possible. Hell, we could go 10 and two if things break our way. And then we start five and two and we go, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to crush that win total. And now here we are, five and five, two games left against teams that are expected to blow us out of the water. And I think we have to give Vegas their due because, like, especially on this show, you and I were both very critical of that win total. I actually said, you know, Florida could hit that over before the bye week, and they almost did. They kept five and two before the bye, but then they haven't won since. And now they're looking at another losing season. And you got to wonder where the program goes. So I know we'll get into all that. I know that was a very, um, a very broad brush I just painted the current perspective with. But I mean, the, the bottom line is this is not a good football team. We kind of should have seen that coming, but it's it's kind of getting worse by the week. And now we we do have to wonder yet again after another loss where the program is headed. Well, it's surprising in the sense that I think a lot of us thought going into the season, the defense was going to have to be the strength of this team. And then the first couple of games play out the way they do. Sure enough, the offense is finding their identity. They're finding ways to move the ball down the field. They're struggling in the red zone. And the defense is picking up the slack. Impressive defense performance against Tennessee. You know, they had some very good defense performance. Even on the road against Utah, that was not the problem that night and why we lost. It was the offense's inability to score in the red zone. And here we are thinking, okay, if we can get the offense figured out, then we'll be good. We started to figure out the offense, and that's when we hit that 5-2 and two mark. And we had a couple of questionable defensive performances, but we said, Austin Armstrong, they got us. These guys got us. Well, then now we're looking at the last three games, and we're getting run out of the building on the defensive side of the ball. And now the offense has, you know, they're, they're still moving the ball down the field. They're scoring enough points to win games, 35 this game, 36 the last game. They're not getting the job done on defense. We're regressing in a significant way. And yes, we're missing Shamar James badly right now. It is evident. It is incredibly evident. We're losing the quarterback of our defense. The guys out there, they're doing the best they can, but they're not Shamar James, an all-conference caliber linebacker. And hopefully they're not the linebackers they're going to be playing whom we have committed right now in the 2024 class that will hopefully sign next month. But that is the major gap right now. And the secondary getting torched week after week. LSU throwing for over 300 yards in this game. Neil, we said one of the keys to this game to win was Florida's time of possession. Well, Florida did actually keep the ball from LSU fairly well. They held the ball for 34 and a half minutes. Now, the problem, though, was that LSU was not stopped nearly enough. We stopped them on a goal line stand. And they fumbled the ball on an ensuing kickoff. And that was the way Florida was able to grab the lead for a short period of time in the third quarter. It did not last long when that happened as Jaden Daniels scored 67 seconds later in the game to give LSU back the lead. And of course, Florida had to, at that point, really play perfect ball from there to even stay in the game and continue to score. The next drive is when a lot of fans, even including myself, felt that the referees and the SEC replay crew 
Dave Florida, the shaft and that catch by Khalil Jackson in my mind. And just looking at it on TV, it did not look like there was enough to overturn the call on the field. Yes. The ball moved, but there was not enough evidence to that the ball hit the ground. And from that point though, when that, whether that was the right call or not, that was really the game in, in essence, because LSU was scoring every single time they touched the ball. Florida was not able to stop them on defense. And then they they boat raced Florida from there. They could not recover. And there the Gators fell by 17 points. So they were kind of doing the right thing by time of possession. But that also means you still have to get some stops and force some punts, which Florida was not able to do in this game. This probably was Jaden Daniels' Heisman moment if he ends up getting to New York and winning the Heisman. He rushed for 234 yards and two touchdowns on the ground. He added 372 through the air and three touchdowns, no interceptions, no turnovers. He absolutely shredded Florida. And if he does win the Heisman, this was his moment. We gave it to him. And the Gators, though, they did fight on offense, Neil. I mean, 311 from Graham Mertz. He is going to be likely over 3,000 yards for the year passing. I don't think any Gator fan would have thought that. Trevor Etienne, playing back in his home crowd, added almost 100 yards on the ground. Three touchdowns. Montreal Johnson, 70 on the ground. A decent performance for him. Ricky Pearsall, 103 through the air. And Eugene Wilson, another touchdown at 63 yards. You know, the Gators on offense played fairly well, but the the defense was the story. So, Neil, do you think that this is a situation where let's talk about quickly the the key moments of the game, right? Where was was there ever a moment that Florida had an opportunity to win this game, or was it just inevitable that because Florida could not make any stops on defense, this game was just a foregone conclusion? I'm 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 supposed to say yes. There was a moment that Florida was supposed to win the game, right? As the as in all kinds of weather, we're supposed to always keep the positive momentum. No, I mean realistically, having watched the defense just get fried on every possession, you, you knew that they weren't going to make a stop unless LSU handed the ball over to Florida the way they did on on the the muff on the kickoff. Um, or maybe if they would have snapped the ball over Jaden Daniels' head and Florida could have recovered it that way, or he just makes a terrible decision because his helmet is not on right or something like that. Like it would have taken an LSU mistake. And and that was possible because Jaden Daniels is human and it's possible for him to make a bad decision. But I mean, barring that, I just don't think there was ever really any legitimate reason to think that it was going to ever turn Florida's way. And you just, you knew by the way, the game was going after um af- after the the Khalil Jackson catch was overturned you just knew it was going to wind up going the other way now i'm i'm no fan of sec officiating i'm the one with that long thread going on twitter there are literally dozens of instances now of the of the nca officials just absolutely screwing florida over but that's not why florida lost they could have at some point gotten a stop they could have given up 500 yards instead of 700. They could have made a stop here or there. Jalen Kimber could have not gotten beaten by five yards on that long touchdown to Brian Thomas. Or, I mean, we can talk about this a little bit later too. But, I mean, if he has help, maybe the safeties should provide him that help. I mean, there's no way that should have been that easy for him. Um, I mean, Derek Wingo just getting blasted by a running back on a very simple pull block. Like, that shouldn't happen. And, oh, yeah, then let's not forget – I don't want to just make this about one guy because there were three guys in this play that didn't do their job, but 
Chris, keep it respectful. Keep it real. We know them all. I know them all. I feel I know Miguel Mitchell very well. He's a great kid. He was one of the stars of that culture piece in the offseason. He's just he's a good person. Not great game tape there. He where he's he's rolling out it with 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 uh six twenty to go in the third quarter. And there's a very simple takeoff by Jaden Daniels because there's no pressure from Florida, but there's no one open. And of course there's no pressure from Florida because there hasn't been any all game. Another instance that I'm, I'm sort of hinting at here. So he takes off. Um, Scooby Williams looks like he's a spy on that play. He just does a belly flop on the turf. Not a, not on purpose, but again, that's just not the kind of game tape that's conducive to Florida winning the game. So he takes himself out of the play. Then Miguel Mitchell swings at Manti Teo's girlfriend. He takes himself out of the play. He falls flat on his face. And then Jason Marshall is just caught jogging like he's going for a, a simple stroll in the park. And he make, doesn't make a simple attempt to, to dive or to tackle or just even, even just try to go for the ball or, or do something on that play just no no care in the world daniels runs by him for a 51 yard touchdown there were just so many different things throughout the course of the game that you look at and you go yeah you know that's gonna happen again florida can score every time they have the ball but it's gonna be something else the next time maybe Jalen kimber will fall down maybe scooby williams will just trip on his own feet maybe Jalen kimber and jason marshall will collide maybe our defensive linemen will block each other again like we saw 10 years ago. It's going to be something. You just know that. And sure enough, 701 yards and LSU puts 52 points on Florida. So you can't ever really say that there was that it was realistic to predict that Florida was going to put out so much terrible game tape. But you could just kind of tell from the ease that LSU was moving the ball down the field with on Florida that it was not destined to end well. Well, even at the moment when Florida led 28-24 for the 67 seconds in the game, ESPN FBI still predicted there was a 58% chance that LSU was going to win the game. And if that doesn't say it all right there, then I don't know what else does. And as Will Muschamp says, overcome the adver- adversity on the field. And Florida did not overcome any adversity on the field whatsoever, whether that was Montreal Johnson getting absolutely pounded out of bounds into the LSU bench, no flag called whatsoever. Shout out Richard Leonard for coming to his boys' defense. These guys clearly have each other's backs, so at least that's something good to see. The, the, the overturn of Khalil Jackson's catch, which, like we've talked about now, probably shouldn't have, regardless – when you have such a small margin for error, you there's no room for anybody else to mess up, and that includes the referees in this game. So when the referees maybe didn't give a call that goes your way, well, then you're screwed because you have no margin for error. And that's that really goes down to the fact that Florida lacks talent, enough talent. They lack coaches right now that are able to put these guys in positions to win the game, and they lack an ability to game plan around their greatest weaknesses or exploit their greatest strengths. Right now, Florida is floundering because they just are low EV at low EV moments at every which way you can think about. And we'll talk about it on offense as well as defense tonight. But when you have such a low margin for error, there's no chance for you to win a game like this. Absolutely no chance. And for Florida to have any hope to win any of these two remaining games where they're going to be heavy underdogs in, they're going to have to start raising their EV or be just damn near perfect. And I don't know if that's quite possible with what we've seen on tape the last couple of weeks. So let's get into the offense and defense here separately. 
We'll start on offense. I don't think we're going to spend terribly too much time on offense because I think we'll have a lot more to dissect with this defense tonight. Offense, like we said, 35 points, almost 500 yards. Graham Mertz, 300 yards in the air. Rushing was actually one of the best. This was one of the best rushing games we've had in a long time. 177 on the ground, including four touchdowns. We said LSU's defense was porous. There was going to be opportunities to move the ball. There was in this game. There were opportunities if we had made a few more stops on defense to win this game. But we just didn't do it. So offensively, though, I want to go to a critical moment in the game. This was when Florida was down by 10 points. They were driving to get it back down to three. It was third and five at midfield. And Billy Napier, who has done this all year long, plays third and five for two downs. Everybody and their mother in that stadium knew Florida was going to run the ball on third and five because they've done it every single time this year. Which, by the way, quick pause, even if they hadn't, it is still a bad move to do even if no one knows it's coming, it's still stupid. But we'll talk about that yes. later. I just wanted to point that out before I forgot. Go it is, it, it's low EV, right? It's low EV. There's no value on that. If, if if he's able to break it, great. But third and five, it just absolutely limits your ability. And you're, if it's not third and ten. If it's third and ten, that's a different story. You can play for two downs there. It's third and five. Go get the first down. And also, at that point in the game, Eugene Wilson had not touched the ball since the middle of the second quarter. He had 63 yards and a touchdown. And once again, our best playmaker on offense outside of Ricky Pearsall and Trevor Etienne didn't touch the ball. Absolutely criminal. So who he hadn't touched, it had a drop pass all season long on fourth and three slant pass. Has his first drop. Now, credit to the LSU defender. He did make it difficult for Eugene Wilson. He did knock that ball out. But still, that is where you give him the ball in that situation? Come on. And then from there, it absolutely was over. No chance. Florida went down by 17 within a few plays after that. So, Neil, once again, Billy Napier in this offensive coaching staff at the most critical point in the game hurt the Gators. Yep. And this is where I'm going to go to a um, to to a certain a certain tweet that I put out uh, on I think I think it was in between the second and third downs. I said move, hustle, like tempo, tempo. No, they didn't do it. And then I got I got more frustrated, and I called out the play. I quite rightly was upset by it. I said, look, Billy, this is an objectively stupid play call but it's made 10 times dumber by you taking the full 40 off the play clock in between the running plays that third and five run to etn was the third time in a row you had run the ball with him between the tackles by the way once he did try to bounce it outside but that was that was him being creative that wasn't where the play was supposed to go that was him trying to be elusive that's the third time you call that play in succession or a very similar play in succession. When you're down 10 with nine minutes to go in the game, that tells me that either Billy Napier didn't care to win the game, or he genuinely didn't think that there was any better way of moving the football down the field, which is just insane. 
That's Graham had over 300 yards. He had over 300 yards passing. And he, once again, actually, we'll go ahead and point this out. Broke Tim Tebow's school record for most passing attempts without an interception. 204. Graham Mertz did that. Who everybody called pick six Swiss going into this season, who was just going to be a turnover machine. Been anything but that. So the fact that he's not trusting his quarterback, who he recruited here in the transfer portal, to not throw the ball on third and five, egregious. Absolutely egregious. And it's and 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 here's where I really get frustrated. People on Twitter were were coming in flocks. They were swarming to that tweet going, how can you blame Napier? The defense gave up 700 yards, bro. How can you possibly put this on the offense? Look, we know the defense is terrible, okay? We've seen it. We didn't know it was going to give up 700 yards, but we saw it against Arkansas. We saw a 32-year-old receivers coach call the first ever game of his life and promptly drop 480 yards of offense on us. We saw that happen. We saw South Carolina put 460 on us with possibly the worst offensive line in all of the Power Five. We knew this defense had holes, especially when Shamar James went down, especially without Tyreek Sapp, without Jack Pyburn, without a fully healthy Cam Jackson. We knew this defense was going to be bad, okay? Yelling at the defense and putting the blame on them we know we it's know defense is going to let us down, but wouldn't it just wouldn't it be nice to I don't know have a play caller who can compensate for that, who can maybe bail it out? That was the single worst defensive performance in school history. We know we've said that multiple times. I called it out on Twitter several times, but beating a dead horse here, wouldn't it just be nice to be able to survive that? by having the other side of the ball step up for you and overcome that issue by calling plays that are more conducive to success. Like that's the thing that just gets me infuriated. It's it's like you're using the defense to excuse Billy Napier's terrible play calling and game management. The two have nothing to do with each other. The defense being terrible is old news. We've seen it before. It's not even worth getting mad at because there are injuries. There is a talent issue on the defense. We know that. But Napier can't control it at this point. Horses are out of the barn. Okay? Too late. What you can control is the set of plays you call. And again, when you're down 10 with nine minutes to go, you don't run the damn ball three straight times and then piss away the full 40 in between the next snap. The, the two are completely unrelated. And this well, is where we're going to go back to last offseason. Chris, last offseason, Napier had the chance to fix these issues. He didn't, and now we're stuck with them. We are still paying for Napier's negligence last winter. So that is why I'm frustrated with his terrible play calling. That is why I am frustrated with the special teams, though it didn't do anything particularly terrible. It actually recovered a fumble last night. But that's why it is perfectly valid for us to be upset about the offensive line not doing its job, for us refusing to get the ball to Eugene Wilson, for Napier not having someone to take these other things off his plate, and for any other thing that goes wrong that's not related to the defense. Because this team is not a very good one. And that is not a statement that you make 
if it is just one side of the ball that's letting you down. The 2007 Florida defense, which until a few years ago was like the anti-gold standard of how not to play defense, that was a terrible defense too. But that team won nine games because they had had a Heisman Trophy winner and they took special teams very seriously. So that, that team, despite its defensive flaws, had other options to win games. They could bail their defense out. That's why we're talking about that team as relatively disappointing, but still pretty successful as nine and four. And this one as a team that's going to probably go five and seven. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, big difference there. And that defense was a lot better. We we would pray for a defense like that right now in, 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 in this year, but it just goes back to, you have to understand the team you have. And if Billy Napier is going to tell us that he's not going to, we're not as fan base, not going to like things up front or it's going to take a long time to build and we're going to get impatient. Well, I think that there, he's going to learn really quickly the sense of urgency that he's going to need to start having very quickly because the heat is being turned up with every single loss. If you're going to finish the season with five consecutive losses, and now, as we'll talk about later, you're going to you're losing recruits. Now you're losing recruits. The only thing that everybody can hang their hat on now is the fact that you are an A-plus recruiter. Now you're losing recruits, top recruits to other schools, whom you're actually going to play in the sec it's not looking good for napier right now and now he has a losing record through 23 games at florida and he could have a very bad losing record the worst record of any uf coach like we mentioned since charlie pell in the last episode so the reason why we're pointing to this moment is because of the fact that this is something napier hangs his hat on as a play caller as an offensive guy and He's clearly putting his team in a worse situation because of his play calling, not utilizing the playmakers that he has. And Florida's just not getting the best out of everybody here. And it, 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 it we're, he didn't get the playmakers, the ball at critical points in the Arkansas game when we could have put Arkansas away sooner and we would have avoided overtime. and would be sitting here with six wins. Right. And now we're sitting here where we have to play a bunch of ranked teams and beat them at least one time. Napier only has himself to blame for this. So once again, offense overall, great performance, but in the critical moment of the game, Napier and the staff let these guys down with not great play calling and not getting the playmakers the ball. This so, is like fertilizer, Chris. It's like talking about this team is honestly like applying fertilizer. You have to spread it to every square inch where it belongs. You can't just drop a cluster of it here and say, defense, defense is fault. We lost the game because of terrible defense. And there's no talk about Napier's terrible play calling or game management or anything like that. It's just the defense. That's not how it works. This is just not a good football team with many different issues that are causing these different units to have these issues. So, like again, like you said, Napier only has himself to blame, and and it's frustrating for me because I do like him. I like mm -hmm. him as a person. I think he does have some of what needs to be had by a head coach to be successful at Florida. But again, and you'll hear this all off season. So here's a preview: Napier put himself behind the eight ball by either being negligent, being pompous, or just being lazy 
last offseason and not doing what was painfully obvious that had to be done. So the frustrations coming out here are nothing new because, again, we knew this team had issues. We knew the defense was bad. We didn't know it was going to give up 700 yards, but we knew it was a problem that was probably going to let Florida down. We knew the play calling of Billy Napier was bad and probably going to let Florida down. But this was all avoidable had Napier done what he was supposed to do 10 months ago. And he's going to have his opportunity in the next month to start correcting those things. But in the meantime, he has two games left and he's got to find a way to get past it all. He can control his play calling in the last two games. He could look at himself in the mirror and say, listen, we're obviously not going to hire another offensive coordinator. But what can we do differently than what we've done in the first 10 games here in the last two? Because that right there, the way we end this season is going to be everything. And any sort of ounce of momentum that we could have going into next season that we desperately need on the recruiting trail as now we are closing in on the final month of recruiting before early signing day. We need some sort of semblance of momentum to give, to reassure recruits that are looking at other schools right now, because we've lost two commitments in the last 24 hours. There are other guys looking at other schools who are actively taking visits right now, even though it's the two guys we lost, we're still a top five class. It could get worse though. It could get worse. And one of the things we're going to say as, there's a list of things Neil and I think that Napier needs to do before the season ends. One of them is solidify a top five class. Because if you don't have that, you don't have an elite class, a tier one class, then I'm not sure there's much value in Napier in the year three. Because that's all that he's not, he's setting himself up for failure if he doesn't have the talent level to win in the future seasons. So, very critical couple of weeks here coming up for the program. And Napier, obviously at the center of it, all of his decisions of making certain staff hires early on in his tenure, maybe some guys that weren't as proven or not making the corrections as Neil is referring to in this past offseason are now coming home to roost with him. So we'll, not, we'll, well, we'll put a pin in Napier for the time being, but let's shift over to the defense. We talked about the fact that obviously it was a very porous performance over 700 yards given up, the worst in school history. Well, let's turn our attention to the play caller of that defense, Austin Armstrong. Neil, Austin Armstrong got a lot of praise early in this season for those performances that we put in, but since then, it's gotten worse and worse and worse, literally actually worse uh, over the last five games here. Is Austin Armstrong on the hot seat one year in his tenure? Or is there something... That is something out of his control. He needs better players. Obviously, this recruiting class coming in, even still, is 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 set up for a lot of guys to come in that are very highly rated. Where do we square this right now with him? So this is one that I think is a lot harder to evaluate. First of all, I don't know exactly what the play calls were. I see a lot of terrible game tape, but I don't know what the play calls were. For example, the I, I talked about three plays uh, a couple of soliloquies ago. Uh, the, the first one being the bomb to Brian Thomas, where Jalen Kimber gives him like a seven-yard cushion off the line, and Thomas just runs a very simple nine route. There's not even like a hitch or a slant or a put a foot in the ground. He just goes. It's just a straight fly pattern, and he beats him by a solid five yards. I don't know right there what Kimber's assignment was. And right there, that makes it harder to really gauge how Austin Armstrong is doing as a defensive play caller. Because if if Kimber was supposed to be in man, then Kimber just did an absolutely terrible job in man and just literally letting the guy walk right by him. And I don't know how you really blame Armstrong for that beyond 
the point of just going, no, you're sitting, Devin Moore, you're in the game. Like, I don't know what else there is to possibly do in that situation. Now, if it was a more complicated look, for example, let's say it was, uh, let, let, let's say like it was a cover three and he thinks that he has one safety who's helping him on his side of the field. And then another free safety that's just playing like the ultimate free safety at the goal line, making sure there's no hail Mary or fly pattern. That's going to beat someone literally whose only job is just making sure no one gets between him and the end zone. Then it's a little more complex. Like did Kimber think that he had more help than he did? Did Kimber think that the help was coming quicker than it was coming? Um, regardless, the safeties, if that's the case, if it was a cover three, if it was a zone look, regardless, the safeties on that play didn't do their job. Someone clearly took a nap. But again, I don't really know if you're going to be able to blame Armstrong for that or if you're going to be able to just point at the players and go, hey, come on, wake up, wake up. You got a responsibility there. So I don't know if that's really on him. It may be a situation where the defense is too complex for all these freshmen, for all these new guys to all grasp at once. I mean, we saw that a year ago, like right after Patrick Tony takes over, Todd Grantham is the DC the year before. It's a very complex scheme, but now Tony comes in and just basically changes the language of everything. And all these kids have to just learn the almost the exact opposite of what Grantham's scheme was. And it's a difficult transition for them. Like everyone who I talked to was saying that Tony was a genius. He was a wizard. Darius Perkins said that he had never learned anything um, close to as much as he learned from Patrick Tony. So they all liked him, but it was just a big, big shift for them all to make at once. And when you do that with college kids, especially on the young end of their college careers, mistakes are going to happen. So I don't know if maybe you want to blame Armstrong for not just coming in with a very simplistic scheme, like a very, very simplistic scheme where it's just hat on hat football. Maybe he tried to bite off more than he could chew. Maybe he assumed that his defense was more similar to Patrick Tony's than it actually is because he does bring a little bit more havoc like from the corners. He does have some more corner blitzes coming in than maybe Tony would have liked to have deployed himself. So again, this is more difficult for me to actually assign blame from him. I think this is just more on the players. I think this is just a case of 11 guys out there and at least seven of them just put out terrible game tape on the regular. And again, that's not picking on people. That's not just pointing the finger at one guy, you know, we, we singled a few of them out like Jason Marshall, Miguel Mitchell, Scooby Williams, Derek Wingo. It's the whole team though. I mean, even the better players on this defense are losing reps in one-on-one. Like there was even a rep where Kelby Collins, who by the way, hustles and I like him. And I think he has a big upside for Florida got embarrassed at the point of attack, he just got embarrassed and thrown down like a ragdoll. And that's not a personal attack. Kelby Collins is <clears throat> tremendously talented. I think he does have a very bright future at the University of Florida. I really hope he uses that as a learning experience. And I think he does have that all SEC, maybe even all American potential if he grows into it. But as for that one play, that was embarrassing. That was just embarrassing. And you can't overlook that when it's all the different pieces on your defense all getting roasted by their competition on the other side of the field. So I don't think Armstrong is without blame. I definitely question some of his personnel decisions, but as far as who's to blame for the entire defense being this terrible, I think it's a combination of injuries of bad recruiting from several years ago, going back to the Dan Mullen tenure, 
a lack of experience as a result of that, because you have such bad recruiting, you don't have grizzled veterans up there to really take the, you know, to really make things happen. And the injuries on top of that are just the icing on the cake. So I feel bad for Armstrong, really, because I do think he's a very bright defensive mind. I think he is getting a, a much worse reputation right now than he deserves. But then again, on the other side of things, the stats are the stats, and it is it is pretty hard to justify. There were certainly some times, though, I think the scheme could have been a little bit different. Like, he's rushing four guys constantly, and he's basically putting his corners in his secondary on an island. And the only reason I'm bringing that up now, at like 10 games into the season, we haven't gotten home to the quarterback very often. Arkansas is the anomaly now out of the 10 games that we've played. We got to Jaden Daniels actually twice in this game, which is more than a lot of the other games we played. But by and large, we haven't been getting to quarterbacks consistently this year. And a shifty quarterback like Daniels, even if you are getting the win rate that some guys brag about on this team, you're not bringing him down. And he's then going 85 yards down the field or 51 yards down the field for a long touchdown run, you're just absolutely gassed. So if I'm Armstrong, I don't know. I'm, I might have maybe considered dropping back and playing a little bit more zone than when we put a lot of man and put guys on an islands when you weren't getting home with the pass rush. And then you get, you know, that's when the aerial attack happens and we got hit for almost 375 yards through the air. So that's where I'll hit Armstrong is I think he, at this point in the season, may have to just take a look and say, hey, my scheme isn't going to work with this roster right now. We don't have the horses there. I mean, we got a guy like LJ McCray coming in, hopefully Amaris Williams, Nasir Johnson coming in next year. You've got linebackers like Miles Graham, uh, like Aaron Childs next year. Darius, yeah. Hey, and, and, you'll, and you'll have, uh, of course, Shamir, Shamar James back next season. Scooby Williams back next season on top of the depth chart that you already still have on defense. Like this, this defense, like you said, is young. Tyreek Sapp, Cam Jackson, Caleb Banks, Scooby Williams. Devin Moore, uh, Jordan Castell, all eligible to come back next season. All starters this year. So I think another year will be in a different situation, but I think you also have to understand the personnel that you're playing with. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's all valid. I think at this point you do have to slap the obvious caveat of if we get them to campus onto every single kid after having just lost two different recruits on the defensive side of the ball in the last 24 hours. I do believe most of that class will stick probably a conversation for another day, but um, yeah, anyway, just had to throw that out there. Also with Armstrong, I do, I do get the sense that the players like him. I do get the sense that the players like to play for him and that does count for a lot with me. I mean, there, there, there were obvious moments against Tennessee where you could see him just fired up and players running over to celebrate with him. They could have run over to celebrate with their own teammates or their head coach or their position coach. They went over to him, and that means something. Like, the players liking their defensive coordinator has to mean something for um, for purposes of, of evaluating a, a position coach. But on the other side of things, I do understand why – he was only rushing for, I would have loved to have sent more guys, but Florida's tried that in different games before and still haven't gotten to the quarterback. And that makes it even easier for the QB to just shred you through the air. And we saw Jaden Daniels be able to run away from a bunch of different Florida players. So I can understand why he probably thinks, all right, if I send seven guys, a, they probably still won't get to him anyway because they just don't do that against anyone they play. So certainly they won't do it against an LSU offensive line that's littered with five-star talent. But also, even if they do, even if that win rate that everyone loves to brag about comes to fruition and you do get into the backfield, they'll just run away from you. 
and then it'll take off. Scramble drills apply. Your secondary, which isn't that great, is going to get all twisted around, and he'll beat you there that way. So I don't think he was really in a position to succeed, however you want to look at it, in this particular game. I think if you're going to make the case to fire Armstrong, which, by the way, I am not on board with. I think he does deserve a second year for sure. But if you're going to make the case, I would point to the week-to-week regression from the point of the Tennessee game onward because the defense has gotten worse even before Shamar James got injured. The South Carolina game, that offensive line is still bad. Like, it is still giving up sacks on the regular. It's everyone but Florida that's able to apply pressure and get to Spencer Rattler and drop him. Like even, even Vanderbilt got some pressure on him. They lost by 40 points and they still applied some more pressure on him. So when it's everyone, but you, you kind of have to look at it and go, no, it, it, it is you. That's your problem. That That's you not doing your job. So that was a bad data point for Florida's defense. And then the Georgia game, even though Shamar James did play hurt, Georgia's offense is very good, but again, It's the game tape that so many different players are responsible for. From the Lad McConkie touchdown where he just stops on a dime, wheels around, and there's no attempt to even bring him to the ground. Um, I mean, Oscar Delt beats you, the the tight end that is nowhere close to Brock Bowers, but somewhat talented, but probably shouldn't be making toast if your secondary still beats you. Like it's the combination of all of those different things that come to mind. I wouldn't use this LSU game as my data point. That's that's all I'll say on him. I, I just thought it was worth bringing up, and because I know a lot of people on Twitter have been talking about that. And why would you hire this inexperienced thirty-year-old play caller on defense who's never called a Power Five scheme before, and and then he's been thrust into this position, and now we're starting to see the regression and the results that we have over the last five games or so so that it's i thought it was worth having the conversation but i would agree with you it's fair fair overall austin armstrong will get another year the only problem though is let's say napier is in dire straits one year from now in year three and austin armstrong is still having similar results out there then you basically risk your entire coaching tenure at florida on a 30 year old play caller so that will be something that we one year from now if we're still sitting in this situation having similar results on defense that we'd have to point to and say well Austin armstrong probably is out the door but so is billy napier in this situation so well yeah that and again that's the thing that that's another talking point that can be redirected back to the fact that Napier should have been making moves last offseason and didn't do it. All these issues we're talking about now were fixable in the winter of December 22, January 23, February 23, etc. He had his chance to make these moves then and everything we're talking about now from the portal misses on the offensive line. Of course, nobody can blame him for uh, Keontae Goodwin, by the way, our, our best and our best wishes and most heartfelt prayers to, to him. His mother has passed away. Um, that was the reason he did not ultimately come to Florida. So obviously that's something that's more important than football. And we have to point out and, and just express our condolences to him for that. But forgetting that, the other misses on the offensive line, Damian George just not being what we thought he was going to be, not being what we hoped he was going to be. The refusal to hire a real special teams coach, not an intern, not a quality control guy, but a real one who could have prevented the double jersey infraction or the leaping penalty against Kentucky or any of the blocked field goals that we had all year long or any of that all comes back 
to last offseason. And now, Chris, I think the next thing we're going to talk about is what Florida is going to do. And when you're talking about what Florida is going to do moving forward, you got to talk about how we got here because that is going to influence our responses to the what we're going to do question. So let's let, let's play a little reversal here. You're the host, but I'm going to ask you the question. How the hell are we here, Chris? Five and two just a few weeks ago, everyone's singing Napier's praises, and now we're staring at watching bowl season from our couches. There's a reason we said early this year we needed to stack wins. And unfortunately, it looks like we may not have stacked enough wins early in the window. We had a Utah team where they were starting their third-string quarterback, Bryson Barnes, with barely any experience. We lose that game. Florida, to be honest, I think if we played that game over the way we're playing offense right now, and you have a similar defensive performance, probably wins that game. Kentucky, you have a better offensive performance, and you don't let Ray Davis gash you, which probably, thinking back, should have been probably a red flag, but we didn't. We, I think we ignored it a little bit too much. That's another game. Probably should have won. You're, we are a more talented team than Kentucky. We're a more talented team than Arkansas. We didn't stack enough wins. That's in the short term how we're here. Bigger picture. Like looking back, it's like you said, there hasn't been enough, I think, self-awareness of the situation that Billy Napier walked into. Florida has not won a championship in 15 years. We haven't competed for a championship. I mean, you could say 14, you know, 2009, 2012, we were contenders. We almost made the national title game. If, if well, three years ago, but I mean, sure, but, but that. But, but since th- then, it's just been an absolute continental shelf. We few, fewer and far between. The fan base is starving for championships. We have not won anything in 15 years. Now, you've had a coaching staff. You've had multiple coaching staffs now. Two coaching staffs ago, you had a coach who absolutely disrespected the university, embarrassed it. This past coaching staff, you had a staff that was hell-bent on winning with the previous guys and not having anything, any sort of semblance of recruiting for the future, and they didn't recruit, and then the next guy comes in, and you're left in tatters. You have nothing. The cupboard is truly bare when you walk in the door. And Napier decided last year, I the first year he came here, I don't have enough time to completely rebuild this roster through the transfer portal. I'm not going to take a full recruiting class. I'm going to tell guys like Nick Evers and Jaden Gibson to go look elsewhere, which they did. And then now, a year later, we took a smaller class, so 20 guys. You had sagas like the Rashada uh, situation. You missed out on elite recruits to Miami and other SEC schools. And you don't have enough bodies through the transfer portal to replace them. And you also missed out on some of the bigger guys in the transfer portal because you were slow to get to them. Keon Coleman, for example. So I think there's been a lot of just lack of urgency from the current coaching staff to understand one, where the temperature of the fan base is. And I understand he said, you're not going to like everything we do. You're going to need to be patient with me. Fine. After a certain point, patience can only go so far when we have already been patient for 15 years. We're tired. We want to see progress. We want to see success. This is a program of excellence in the in its history. 
And when you're making move, when you're there isn't an urgency to make moves to move toward that, the fan base gets riled up. And then when you see, we we basically saw this coming, but nothing seemingly was done about it. Now here we are. That's why he's sitting on the hot seat going into year three. And that's why we're here today because there was a, no sense of urgency or recognition of the situation at hand. Now we'll talk about where we go from here in a second, but I don't know, Neil, does that about encapsulate how we are now sitting here, November 12th, 2023, five and five with a coach who now has a losing record through 23 games into his tenure. Yeah. I'm going to go a little farther than you. That, that That's a very good base, but you know me, you know my personality, so I'm going to go a little farther than that. I understand. I, I completely understand that Dan Mullen did not leave him with a lot of talent. I completely understand that there was a massive culture poison that was just running rampant throughout the program. Anyone who wants to come at me with that and throw my own words in my face from the thousands of words I wrote, the tens of thousands of words I wrote, really, on all of those issues this past offseason, please understand, I get it. I know there were culture problems. I'm the one who investigated it for six months. I get it. But there's no way you can sit there and tell me that the roster was so bare the roster was so poisoned by a bad culture that Florida should be giving up 700 yards of offense in a single game. Did you know, Chris, by the way, where Florida ranks this season on defense in terms of yards per play allowed? I tweeted it out, but for those of you who don't know, or Chris, do you know? Do you, I do actually you don't. See that tweet? I, I do Florida not. has been surrendering 11 and a half yards per play. That is the worst in the SEC. That is the worst in the Power Five. It is 129th out of 133 teams that play FBS football. The talent that Dan Mullen left Billy Napier was not good, but there is no way in hell you will convince me it was that bad. There is just no way you will ever convince me that the cupboard was left that barren. It's just not possible. We're an SEC team. Vanderbilt is ahead of Florida. Vanderbilt is ahead of Florida in that category. Vanderbilt is ahead of Florida in that category. Yards per play allowed. Sorry, Florida's giving up 6.7 yards per play on the season, 11.5 yards per play against LSU. I jumped the gun a little bit, mixed up my stats. I'm sorry. But, oh, you know what? I can I, I can admit when I make a mistake, and I can correct it. Billy, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something maybe you could learn here? You've made quite a few of them. I haven't seen you make any corrections to them. You, you had a you had a bye week to maybe reshuffle your staff, and I don't know, get rid of your two offensive line coach system, which wasn't working, and put someone on the special teams role 
in a full-time basis. That was on purpose, by the way. But do you not see the point I'm making? Do you not see where this soliloquy was headed? Billy, it's possible to make mistakes, own them, correct them, and be better off for them. And now it seems like I had a plan all along for where this monologue was going, doesn't it? Billy, we're fans of you, okay? Chris and I are fans of you. We want you to succeed here. But you've just shot yourself in the foot over and over again, and now your whole leg is in danger of being amputated. Like, you got to make changes this offseason. And I don't just mean the cursory ones. I don't just mean the ones that are going to check boxes and make everyone happy because they've been screaming for it for two years now that you have to do. No, I mean me making real changes that you know deep down are necessary. Don't just hire a yes man of an offensive coordinator. Don't just put someone like Billy Gonzalez as the special teams coach because you know you got to put someone there. No. You have to do research this offseason, and I would argue that your biggest recruits this offseason are not actually kids, but they are other coaches around the country who you have to sell on the future of this program because you've put yourself in a pretty bad spot here. You're going to have to convince assistant coaches. I mean, someone like a Ryan Grubb is probably off the table now. Someone like a Jeff Levy is probably waiting to be a head coach. But maybe, maybe a Ben Arbuckle. You're going to have to sell him, who's, by the way, at a crumbling Washington State program, as they're going to be left in the cold of the new Pac-2. You have to convince him that your program is the one where he can invest his future in. You're going to have to get these sales pitches across to the next generation, the next wave of Joe Brady's. By the way, that name himself is not someone I actually want. But the next version of him, the next wave, the next generation of those kinds of names with those kinds of hot stocks, you're going to have to sell them on your program now. And you now have more work to do because of the fact that, yes, it was a very very, let's say, uh, talentless roster, very talent void roster. Yes, it was. But because the roster you had has underperformed, it has it had low expectations to start with, and it has still, you know that meme, our expectations were you or for you were low, but holy, you know, we're not <laughs> gonna get this, we're not gonna get this pod rated explicit, but you know the meme, right? We're not gonna give you the opportunity, Billy, to continue to do things the way you've done them and continue to lead the program on the trajectory in which it's headed. Because you doing that has led the program to underperform now two years in a row, one year of which you had a top five pick at quarterback and managed to go six and six. And the next year in which you had a pretty damn good one, maybe not a top five pick, but Graham Merch is a perfectly fine SEC quarterback with a damn good running back in Trevor Etienne, another solid running back in Montrell Johnson, very good receivers in Ricky Pearsall and Eugene Wilson. And at best, you're looking at seven and five, probably five and seven right now. So how did we get here? Because you didn't do your job last offseason. Where do we go from here? You're, you're, you're going to hit home runs this offseason or you're not going to make it. So those home runs you speak of, this is sort of where I'll say my dream offseason scenario. We've talked about what led us to this point. Where what 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 where's the paradigm shift starts to occur? Well, for starters, top five class. This time next month or a few weeks after, 
if we're not talking about a top five class, Billy Napier is in trouble at Florida. You can you could screen record this, mark it down, bookmark it. If Billy Napier doesn't have a top five class at the early signing day point, he's in trouble. I'd not argue he's six. already in trouble. He's going to be in big trouble if he doesn't get a top five class. Yeah, not number six, not number seven, not top five. Has to be top five. And he's got to replace the guys he just lost, Waller and Mordell Mack. You got to, there's guys on the board you can do that with, but you got to go get them now. And look, Texas A&M fired Jimbo Fisher today. There's a couple of guys that we're recruiting right now. Dalen Evans, who we were recruiting heavily for a flip in the summer. Cam Coleman going to be visiting in December. Jordan Pride, who we were committing, who we were recruiting this past summer for safety. That's another one from the state of Florida too. Those are our opportunities right there of a school that is definitely already fired a coach and, you know, opportunity open season to go get those guys. There's also guys like Zay Mincy. Go get them. Teammates with LJ McCray. You got to close on guys like that in this class. Jordan Seaton, who he said is the top, top guy. Number one, if we, if we, if we shift our resources from Waller to him, fine by me. The most important position right now, offensive line. He's got to address that this offseason. Not only does he have to get a Jordan Seaton, take it a step further. You now have to go in the transfer portal and find better offensive linemen because you didn't do it last offseason. You missed. You can't miss this year. You got to go get somebody ready to start in the SEC. Somebody will be out there. Go find your Osiris Torrance. Go find someone that is able to make an impact day one at the University of Florida. The next thing he's got to be doing, like you said, play caller. Get a play caller. Have him installed before. Best case, it would be before signing day or at least the February signing day so guys can know who's going to be their coach. But for install to take place so the guys that come back, hopefully Graham Mertz comes back and mentors DJ Lagway into that role. Eugene Trey Wilson, Trevor Etienne, Ada Mizell, Andy Jean, those kind of guys that can learn the playbook and already have that install ready for spring so we could hit the ground running. And then I would say you definitely got to have a special teams coordinator in place to reassure the fan base that you're listening and you recognize how that has lost you at least two games this year and you don't want it to cost you games in the future, get a special teams coordinator, somebody dedicated to special teams on the field. And you know what? You could go out and get a great recruiter too that can be a special teams coordinator, somebody that is an ace recruiter on the trail and only focuses on special teams in the coaching offices for game planning. That's a win-win, honestly. And as I've talked about it at nauseum, the two offensive line coach experiment is over. And that's probably how you're able to reshuffle your coaching staff allocation on the field with the numbers you want to have in order to have a play caller, a special teams coordinator, one offensive line coach. And you probably will have to make a change. I would wager on the defensive side. I'm not sure who that is, but maybe Austin Armstrong coaches linebackers. You shift. I mean, I think Jay Bateman is probably somebody you definitely want to keep. He's been one of the better recruiters. He's responsible for those linebackers that are committed right now. Do we? Def- I just have to say, do we dare have the conversation about Corey Raymond right now? It's weird because you know we we brought him in to be this ace recruiter, and honestly, he's not responsible for the 
recruiting wins on the trail. Now that can change if you get it. I I, admit, I did not mention him. Jameer Grimsley is another game name you need to go get there. Flip him from Alabama. You get Zay Mency. I think it's a different conversation because obviously that's who's recruiting those guys. So you need to be prepared for the fallout of that. But I don't know. I find it hard to believe that a guy like Corey Raymond could be at LSU for so long and recruit so well and put so many guys in the NFL consistently that he's the problem that to me, I think it's more of the saying that I think he needs maybe to get his guys in. I, I'm willing to give him another year of coaching them and recruiting to see, but yeah, I don't think we've gotten the returns. We've thought of having Corey Raymond on staff, Well, he hasn't given us the results that he's in two years that he got at LSU in over a decade. So small sample, We'll see. And if he doesn't close on Grimsley, doesn't close on Mency, then I think then that you really start to wonder what what kind of recruiting prowess he truly has. It shouldn't matter. He was able to go down to Florida for years and pluck guys back to the state of Louisiana. He should be able to recruit guys in his own backyard now that he wears the logo of the flagship university in that state. Shouldn't be a problem. But like I said, top five class, be more successful in the transfer portal by being a lot more aggressive in it. And then reshuffle your coaching staff. And then the narrative changes. Then you put the fans at ease until next August when fall camp starts and you have a new season and you are about to embark on the hardest, most difficult, treacherous schedule in school history and maybe in college football history. Next year where you open with Miami, you play UCF and Florida State in your non-conference, and then you go to Texas, you go to Tennessee, you play Texas A&M at home, Ole Miss at home, it, it's an insane LSU. LSU. I mean, at Mississippi State, by the way, that's your breather. Kentucky, which has beaten you down three years in a row. I will say, though, the, the one thing, though, with next year's schedule, there are some wins in there. Like, you you got to beat Miami. Then you yep. get Samford. So you, you could be 2-0, and and now you have a little bit of an ego booster. Maybe that momentum carries you to a, a win at Tennessee, and then maybe you get a break here, there. Maybe Kentucky is just having, I don't know, some injury problems, or maybe you're finally pissed off enough about them beating you every year that you get some payback against them, and now you're 4-0. Like, it could work out in a way that it benefits Florida, and it's not as hellacious as it seems, and of course, Central Florida is just not at Florida's level. So that's another no. win that Florida should be able to get. But going going back, Dell, I want to I want to bring back something you said a few minutes ago about Billy Napier saying how you guys are going to get frustrated with me. I I don't think he's lazy by any means. I think he is very organized and very meticulous about everything. I do you think he's self aware? I think he's self aware. I just don't think he has urgency. Right. I, I think that's true. So I'm saying I don't think he's lazy, but at the same time, saying that kind of feels like a cop out, doesn't it? You guys are gonna get frustrated with me. It feels like it feels like you were building in excuses for either malpractice, laziness, negligence, um, just outright defiance, oppositional defiance disorder to be able to do whatever you want and like have a little bit of an ego come out in your decision-making with your personnel for the first couple of years. Because again, the stuff he's going to do this off season, we're saying he has to hit home runs now because this upcoming season should be the second year of him having these new guys in place. It should be 
not a rebuilding year, not a new year. It should be a year or sorry, not, not a, a new look year. It should be a year in which you have established some continuity because this year's team 2023 is very young. So this year, had you done what you were supposed to do last off season, this year could have been a true rebuilding year where everybody coaches, players, uh, your army, everyone, even fans together could have learned, grown, been better for it, gone through their growing pains. But next year you hit the ground running because there's all kinds of continuity with the coaches, with that army, with that group of players. Everything could have been running smoothly by the end of the season as you go along with the new personnel being where it is, um, with the new offensive coordinator that you could have hired for this year, the new special teams, maybe the double jersey infraction never even happens, but even if it does, maybe you make changes more quickly, you stop getting kicks blocked every damn game, and you're showing some upward trajectory there and next year you just don't have to worry about these things even if florida is five and five right now you think you know what there was just there's just a lot of new pieces coming into place but now there's going to be some established presences everywhere you look on this florida roster next year and i'll say another thing here too napier doesn't get any additional leash next season with this new personnel just because he effed up last offseason. Like, it just doesn't work that way. You don't buy yourself the opportunity to make more mistakes because of a big mistake, or maybe, should I just say, a refusal to do the right thing last offseason. Like, that's not going away. If Florida starts off next season one and two, there is no patience. There is no sympathy for the, oh, he has a new offensive coordinator learning the roles. He has a new special teams coordinator. You'll have to forgive Florida for getting three kicks blocked against Miami. They have a new special teams coordinator here. Nope. It's not going to work that way because that should have been addressed this season. So look, it is possible that next year Florida will surprise a lot of people and they will come out of the gate strong, beat Miami. Maybe they'll steal one like at Texas or at Tennessee or Kentucky. Maybe they'll wind up with a, a five and two record again, but this time against much tougher competition. And we'll all just look back at this moment and laugh. But Billy, if you ultimately do fail at Florida, it is all, I'll say this again and again, Chris, as you said earlier, you can screen record this. You can snap this in time. Billy Napier's failures at Florida, whatever they may be from here on forward, will all be traced back to this past offseason. That is the root and the stem of any and all problems where he failed to start addressing the systemic issues in his roster this past offseason. Forget the fact that there was a culture problem. Forget the roster issues that he had to deal with and he came in. I know I do sympathize with that. Please, please believe me. I spent six months delving into all this. I get it. But it doesn't excuse the unrelated things, the un unrelated problems that he created for himself by either being egotistical, negligent, or lazy. Control what you can control. He hasn't done it, and that's why he's here tonight, sitting at 5-5, five and five, sitting squarely on the hot seat, going into next season, and being forced to make dramatic changes over a period of time. And look, like you said, if he had made some of these changes this offseason, he wouldn't have to avoid a pivotal third year where you have a new play caller, where you have a new special teams coordinator, where you have maybe 
almost an entirely new staff. Who knows what happens this offseason? You're also going to infuse 22 to 25 new freshmen plus transfers into the program. That's also, that's a quarter of your roster, over a quarter, that's like a third of your roster is going to change this offseason because inevitably, you know, because of the fact Florida only has six true seniors slash graduate transfers that will be graduating off scholarship this year, you're going to have a lot of guys either leave early for the NFL. I don't think there are many, but there will be probably a few. And then you're going to have a lot of guys transfer out of the program because they just either don't cut it. As we saw one Jordan Herman today, and now he's entering the transfer portal. You're going to have, I'm sure, I would imagine a couple of more do the same. Probably guys that haven't quite played a lot at Florida or want to maybe use their last year or two of eligibility somewhere else. But that means you're going to have an influx of new guys. And the same things are going to happen again. Oh, new roster, new coaches, learning scheme getting used to each other. It's year three. The excuses are gone. The excuses are gone, like Neil said, and the leash is going to be a lot shorter and the games are going to be a lot tougher. And there's going to be a lot of pressure to perform, to win, to deliver results in year three. The three-year test exists for a reason. A lot of programs, there's a lot of historical data that show if you don't do something by your third year, you will not make it. There are a couple of outliers but not many. Dabo Sweeney obviously is one, but he did it in the ACC. There isn't a lot of historical evidence in the SEC outside of Philip Fulmer and Tommy Tuberville after their third year winning an SEC championship at a school. It, it, it just, it's very, it does not happen. So next year, Napier is going to either have to dramatically improve his win total or we have to look back and say, Year one was really more of a year zero and year two was more of a year one. So next year is more like a year two. But even still, if you look at it that way, year two still should be dramatically better than year one. So if we're if we're looking at how he had to use year, year one, which is really his year zero to rip it down to the stud like we've talked about this past offseason. And now he's rebuilding it. He's, you know, rebuilding the house from the foundation all the way up. And he's still in the process of that fine. But that means by next year, you have to truly see results and see a logical conclusion that this could go in the right direction. The last thing I'm going to say here too, Neil, is the administration, certain people in the UAA have a vested interest to see Napier succeed because I don't believe they're going to be around if he doesn't. And rightfully so, because you've now had an opportunity to hire two head football coaches at Florida. If they don't pan out, you're not going to get a third, and you're especially not going to get a third with a new university president here. So it's not just Napier that has a vested interest to see this football program take a dramatic leap this year, this next year. Like Scott Strickland, a lot of the guys he brought in with the UAA, if he ever wants to see that stadium renovation happen, he better hope that Billy Napier is the coach. Because they stuck, they staked their reputation and their professional career at Florida on it. Because if he doesn't, we're not just talking about a new head coach next year. We're talking about a whole new athletic department. Which for some fans, they might actually welcome. I don't know. But the best case scenario for everybody, for everybody listening tonight, for any Gator fan out there, is for them to have a come-to-Jesus moment where they realize they have to make dramatic changes this offseason. The UAA has to throw their full support behind this coaching staff and give them whatever they need to succeed, whether that is money for hires, support in the NIL game to bring in the best recruits, 
whatever it takes. Because if not, <clears throat> but this we're going to have another conversation. This is the problem, though. They've already done that. Hugh Hathcock has shelled out tens of millions of dollars for this athletic program right now. He's seen well, no he's not the that. he's not the only one. There's uh, others, correct, but, but, but you think that his opinion exists in isolation is a dangerous, dangerous thought process to go down, and that's really where this whole conversation's got to start and end. Because yes. I am one person. Chris is one person. We are two people. This is one show. This is one website. This is one set of opinions. Chris and I basically in lockstep with this. But if you think that our opinion exists in isolation, if you're going to point to that buyout and say, yeah, there's no way Florida fires him. There's no way because the buyout is so big. Think again, because Texas A&M just completely shredded all previous standards for what is acceptable to pay a coach to not do his job at this specific school. Once one school does it, other schools will do it. Correct. Texas A&M has reshifted that paradigm. And yes, I know they have oil money that Florida doesn't. But if you think that Florida is that far behind Texas A&M in terms of funds, and you think that Billy Napier is untouchable forever? He, he is this year. But if you think that that's going to stay that way, if he keeps underperforming, you're in for quite a shock. When- can I ask you? Can I ask you a question though? Because you say he's untouchable right now. If he, let's say the, fall, the recruiting class just falls apart, we don't yeah. even have a top ten class. Like, does he get fired? He gets a third year, but the seat is even hotter. They they don't want they don't want to pay him the thirty two million. Um, when when the buyout number drops from thirty two million to twenty five million, I think is when you have that conversation. Okay, fair enough. Then twenty five million would be after like, twenty four. After twenty four, yeah, and, okay. and, and it could be a situation like if you remember with Texas A and M, um, Jimbo Fisher and A and M went out and blasted Mississippi State by forty points. It was decided before that. It didn't matter right. what they did that game. It could be a scenario where he's a dead man walking, and barring a CFP appearance, he's done after this season. Like they could make their minds up, especially if Ben Sass really thinks that he's got enough information to make that decision and says, look, we got a course correct here. The people who are currently in their positions are just not what needs to, they're not the people that need to be in those positions for Florida to be what it could be. Um, I'm going to make a change, but obviously it doesn't do much good doing it two games into the year. So I'm just going to wait now until the end of the year or until the losses pile up enough that there's no point in waiting any further. But um, yeah, he's untouchable this year. I think um, I, I think that if, if things don't change trajectories in a, in a drastic fashion, I, I'm really not seeing justification to bring him back in 2025. Real quick, before we go to our verdict, do you see Billy Napier making the changes necessary to survive past year three? Million dollar question. I, I really hope he does. I, I like the guy. I think that do you, but do you think he can, do you think he will? I, I don't know. I genuinely it, it, gun to my head. I'm forced to make a, a prediction here. I will say yes, but that is with very low confidence. That is with extremely low confidence. Um, we like to do percentages here, right? So I'll say probably a 55-45 proposition that he will make the, the right changes, by the way. Not just yes-man hires, not just box checkers, but 55-45 proposition that he will make the right hires. Okay. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. Right along, locks that 50-50 shot. He pulls this off, does what he needs to do. 
And, you know, in another month or so, I think we're gonna have some really interesting episodes and content in December and in January because of the changes that are going to be most likely having to occur. Mm -hmm. So good plug to uh, if you're not already, make sure you hit subscribe and like down below. And you know what we I know we said at the beginning, leave a comment on your your thoughts of the game. Leave your comment on what you want to see Billy Napier do this offseason and what you think he needs to do to survive into year three in all right, Neil. Well, I think we've we've really gotten into kind of the heart of the issues tonight and what we've got to do in order to correct them and what the Napier tenure looks like moving forward. But let's go ahead and get into our final verdict for the LSU game. Let's give our grades, offense, defense, special teams, and coaching. And uh, that'll be it for a show. So what's your grades for this one? Yeah, I mean, offense, obviously getting at the best grade of the four. You got to think that I mean, with, without the coaching putting them in bad situations, they would have pretty much done what they were supposed to do. So they get a B plus because they, I'd say that they were good, but not necessarily great. Um, love the fight from Trevor Etienne on those runs, just running angry every time he touched the ball. Love that. Um, yeah, B plus for them. Defense, uh, is it possible to give negative grades, Chris? Because I, I feel well, because I, I feel like you deserve a special something, something for the single worst performance in school history. A zero, maybe. Well, I've given I've I gave a zero for coaching for Arkansas, so I feel like this is somehow even worse. This is like it, instead of answering any questions on your test, you just wrote like a big fat fu at the teacher, and then like four or five more profanities in a in a hate letter to them. Like, because this was just so disrespectful. This is like expulsion you know, level. You get, like, you get expelled yeah. from oh, school. Oh, yeah. This is. Yeah. You're you're on academic probation. You're kicked no, out of the university. Probation. This is like, this is beyond that. Uh, Arkansas was probation, letting a first time play caller put 481 on you. This, again, 700 yards of offense. I don't want to hear that I'm being harsh. I know these are kids. I know they're trying their best, but the game tape that they rolled out there. Again, you want to go back to the the first like 25 minutes of the show where we talked about those three plays. They're more like them. They don't exist in isolation. Everywhere you look, there's bad game tape being put out there, and it all results in the single worst performance in the history of Florida football. So you get a a zero with like a middle finger attached to it because that's like that's what you said to to this program. So zero. Um, well, no, I shouldn't. No, not the middle finger at the the players. I'm saying the middle. The players essentially like wrote a middle finger to everyone who's ever come before them and played defense for the Florida Gators. So yeah, that kind of zero coaching. I mean, you, you get a solid F. Um, special teams didn't do anything terrible. I guess they actually recovered a, a muff on LSU side. Um, I'll, I'll say that 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 coaching gets. That F, but not a zero. Special teams gets a what? what like, like, what's the neutral grade? You think? Like, I mean, I I don't know. I, I think they at least deserve a B. Uh, I, I mean, I'll give my grade, but I don't think they deserve a C. I mean, I think I give them a C plus. They because they didn't do anything terrible. They also didn't do anything great. They did recover the fumble. Um, they could have changed the game. Honestly, that I mean, if Florida like doesn't, they continue to score in that game. That we could have looked back as that was the play that changed it all. So I don't know. I mean, I think you're, I think you're being a little tough on special teams today. Right, I mean, I know I'll, I'll say, they've, they've I'll, deserved, I'll say, they've deserved it this year, but I don't know about this game. I'll say a fringe between 
a B minus and a C plus. The defense is the one I just can't get over. Like, oh sure, yeah. We, because again, the purpose of the, of the verdict is uh, the final word is to go quick and like give our grades rapid fire. But we can't talk enough about how historically bad this defense was. So the the grade from zero to one hundred doesn't exist for this team. This is if you just write a big fu to everyone who's ever played football at the University of Florida before, because that's how embarrassing this was. Disrespectful. It's disrespectful. It's a disrespectful yeah. zero. Sure. Agreed. Well, so I, I, I'm not going to differ too much on almost all the grades. Uh, offense, I agree. I like the B plus. Where uh, they didn't do enough to get the win. Whereas if they had won this game, we would have might be talking about one of the greatest offense performances in school history. That's kind of the difference. That's the Herculean effort it would have taken to win. But they they were solid. This is a game where if you have this sort of offensive effort nine times out of ten with an average defense, you probably win it. So they get a B plus though for for not getting there. Defense, I think Neil summed it up pretty well. It was a disrespectful performance. To do you have any it, real? Do you have any really any real qualms with the way I put it? No, I don't. I mean, it, it was disrespectful to the guys that played defense before and at this great university. We've been known for some great defenses. We once loved to tell and tout the DBU moniker of of college football and. The, Far cry from that over the last several seasons, last decade, really. And this was probably the worst performance of the ball, which is hard to believe considering we went through the Todd Grantham years under Dan Mullen and had some atrocious efforts in the, in those seasons. This one is by far the worst. And yeah, I mean, if we're talking like grades wise, it's not even a zero. It's you're kicked out of school. Like this is that kind of a level of effort and well, I, I just hope that they could somehow rebound and do something in the last two games here to find a way to get us that sixth win. Special teams. You know what, Neil? I'm going to do it. I'm going to give an A. I think they deserve an A. Jeremy Croshaw, three punts inside the 20-yard line. You want to talk about ways Florida could have won this game? It was time of possession and field position. Jeremy Croshaw pinned LSU inside the 20 three times. And it's just unfortunate the defense could not flip, keep that field position in Florida's favor, which also could have turned this game into our favor. If they had gotten some stops, we get the field at midfield then, and you have not as far to go for the offense. And maybe we put a few more, another touchdown or two up on the board. But because, you know, Jeremy Crawshaw was able to get them inside the 20, that could have set up Florida for success down in the second half. Trace Mack didn't attempt a field goal, but he had all five of his extra points. I actually counted multiple times on field goal blocks as well as other special teams plays. That's I true. didn't count one time where we That's had true. less than 11 guys or more than 11 guys. So there was an improvement there. We want to talk about improvement. And yeah, we recovered a muff kickoff that could have turned the game. And it did give us the lead for 67 seconds. So you know what? This was maybe the best special teams effort of the season. And for that, I'm going to give them an A. They weren't the reason why we lost the game. And they honestly played fairly really well so i'm gonna give them an a they've been much maligned for very good reasons this year we still need the special teams coordinator this does not absolve any of that whatsoever but i think they deserve that coaching they deserve an f this was a i think from the scheme to critical play calling to personnel decisions and when you get them the ball it's criminal that we don't give the ball to trey wilson the entire game, really. I think this guy needs 20 touches a game. He's that good. It was good to see them give the ball more to Trevor Etienne. That was my one of my biggest complaints after the Arkansas game. 
but the play call on the third and five, as Neil and I talked about, they're just there was just the coaching staff just doesn't set Florida up for success and they limit the margin for error. So overall, I would this is a, obviously a failure of a grade. I mean, you know, I offense special teams, they did well. They did what they needed to do, but the defense was so bad that it did not matter. And now Florida going into the final two games of the season has to put together at least an average defense, an average. Can we get an average defensive performance? Like I'll take 350 to 400 yards given up on offense. Fine. Just give us something average in the last two games of the season to maybe give us a chance to win our sixth game. Against it's not going to happen because Missouri has 443 yards of offense per game for a 443.7 yards of offense per game. FSU 444.7 yards of offense per game. These next two games are going to be bad. I, I mean, again, where it it's, remains to be seen exactly what's going to happen next year. I'm not saying the Napier tenure is definitely going down in flames, but Buckle up because these next two games are going to be rough. And I, I do think very, very quickly, I do have to quantify my grade on special teams. I did I did forget to take into account the fact that we did not have um, a, a counting error on any of our field goal block or pump block um, lineup attempts. So for that, I, I will stand corrected. I will give them a B. The reason I'm not giving them an A is because they didn't have that actual game-changing play. LSU muffed that kick. It wasn't like someone ran in there, stuck a paw in there, and punched it out. They just dropped the ball. It wasn't like we blocked a punt. It wasn't like we did a fake field goal that got us 60 yards down the field for a touchdown or anything like that. So the A grade is for something spectacular. I wouldn't say that we were spectacular. We just did the things that we were supposed to do. So we get a passing grade. I gave them a comfortable passing grade, but I will. Uh, you're right, we did not line up with any number other than 11 players on special teams. So I will give them a B for that. And obviously the overall grade, uh, did you give a zero to a hundred number or do you just said obviously failure? Just failing effort. I, I would say a failing. So effort. Where, where on that failing grade from like zero to 60. Uh, I guess the thirties because I did rate the offense and the special teams high. So yeah, I, I think it probably grades out to the worst performance of the season. I would say Arkansas was well, eh. no, the level of competition has to be taken into consideration too, though. I mean, yeah, I know the two teams played close. Arkansas and LSU were close. It's the worst play. defensive performance in school history. I think yes. there's a high weighted average for yeah. that. So I, I would say it's the worst overall. I think it just as a team, it's one of the worst. I will say the grit though, and the fight from this team was there. And that's my right. only hope for, for us winning one of these next two games. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just bad. It's all bad. So, I mean, I, I think you're right. Most likely that the next two games are going to be tough. I don't know. I still fall on that. I think we find a way to get one. I don't know. It's just a really? feeling. It's a gut. You yeah, really I don't know. Why? Mm -hmm. It's just, I, I can't explain it. It's a gut feeling. It's college football. Do you think it's because the swamp can maybe get us? Yes. We don't yes. And I mean, Florida State barely beat Miami at home. And they've been struggling in recent games, like if they don't, if they get through undefeated, they're, they're going to get slapped in the, in the CFP. 
Like I, they don't have. I don't think see, Georgia up. doesn't look so invincible themselves. Oh, like, I think Georgia looks like the number one team in the country right now after what they did to Ole Miss. Right. Yes. Man. Correct. I think they're, they're finally. Right, yes. I think they're finally result, getting there. Yeah. But, their most recent result does make them look very good, but the overall body of work that they've put out does not. Um. All right. Last thing I'm going to say, and we're going to call this a show. I just want to point out a little piece of evidence to those who who may be getting tired of me just saying, "Well, oh, look at the game tape. Look at the game tape. Look at the game tape." So here you go. Here are the timestamps. Okay. Third quarter quarter six minutes 20 seconds to go that's the 51 yard touchdown for Jane daniels we cannot show it on the show for copyright reasons but if you're listening on audio or if you're watching on youtube whatever go on youtube find the highlights of the game 620 to go in the third quarter that's the 51 yard touchdown where uh where miguel mitchell is just throwing haymakers at ghosts and jason marshall is just lollygagging in the general direction that's that play then go to 922 to go in the fourth quarter that is where brian thomas just zooms by Jalen kimber for the touchdown and then go to about two and a half minutes to go that is the play where Derek wingo just gets absolutely lit bopped. up by a running back and it's not even just him look at the whole defensive line they just all get smacked they just get knocked down and i know there was some arguments made on social media i think a decent one that they knew daniels was running to the outside so they were not necessarily attempting to get to push they were trying to run with him but there's no excuse for them all getting knocked on their heels and stumbling in that direction if they were really pursuing and they were not attempting to get in the backfield you might see their bodies then be turning and their legs churning and their arms moving in that direction, not them just stumbling there because they were shoved in that direction off balance. So those are the three plays. Go look at the game tape yourself. For you, I mean, who, who just need to see the visual proof yourself, you have the timestamps and you can make your own judgments based on that. Absolutely. Well, I think that about does it. It's another episode here of the In All Kinds Weather Forecast. Thank you all for tuning in, listening, and watching. If you're watching on YouTube, once again, make sure to hit subscribe, like the show, leave a comment about your reaction to the game or what you think Billy Napier needs to do this offseason. In an audio form, rate and review the show helps us reach Gator Nation and bring us great content. And, of course, if you're looking to upgrade your merch, your Florida Gator apparel, make sure to go in all kinds of weather in an allkindsweather.com slash merch. Neil is sporting. If you can see it on YouTube, his in all kinds weather Tumblr. But from all of us here at the in all kinds of weather forecast, I was your host, Chris Yanes, alongside my co-host, Neil Shulman. Hang in there, Gator Nation. Brighter days will eventually come back to Gainesville, Florida. <laughs>